Sea Power, the podcast from the Center for Naval Warfare Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Our program showcases leading thinkers and doers in the art and practice of maritime strategy and operations, broadcasting their cutting-edge insights around the world and to all the ships at sea. I'm Isaac Carden, and I'm delighted to host today's conversation with two esteemed guests. Mike Dom is a retired U.S. Navy commander with a distinguished career as an intelligence officer working in Beijing and in the Indo-Pacific Command, among others. Lonnie Henley is another of our nation's crown jewel retired China intelligence analysts, having served over 40 years as an Army China FAO and culminating as a two-term defense intelligence officer for East Asia. The views presented here do not reflect official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. So today, we are going to be discussing China's civilian maritime capability and capacity. Uh, and this is a subject that both of our guests today have done extensive research on, both as intelligence officers and now as private citizens doing open source research, including for the China Maritime Studies Institute here at the Naval War College. We're going to dive into a bunch of questions surrounding how China's maritime power has been developed over time and how, in particular, the PLA Navy and Chinese central leadership are utilizing this impressive civilian maritime industry and capability and assets to support China's broader aims. So without further ado, let me ask Lonnie to help us understand a little bit the bigger picture here. China's maritime power, Haiyang Changguo, is often misunderstood as equivalent to China's naval power alone. Can you help us understand what Chinese leaders mean when they speak about and provide resources for developing maritime power in China? And in particular, what role do civilian maritime industries like shipping, fishing, ports, shipbuilding play in China's maritime power program? Well, as you indicated, Isaac, the Chinese leaders regard the development of Chinese economy as one of the, the primary objectives for the government for the coming decades. And the maritime capacity of the, of the nation is one of the great indicators of economic strength and of status as a global power. The PLA is the military component of that, but the economic component of that is the enormous Chinese commercial shipping industry and the enormous Chinese fishing industry. These are not necessarily instruments of state power, but they're instruments of comprehensive economic power for the nation. These days, many of the major corporations engaged in uh, maritime commerce are not necessarily government-owned. There are many private enterprises that engage in maritime commerce. So it's not entirely, as I said, an issue of state power, but is certainly comprehensive economic power for the nation. This fits closely into the Belt and Road Initiative, which focuses on developing the infrastructure to enable this expansion of Chinese maritime power from the source countries to China and the entire route on, along the way to enable the commerce that makes China a great power. You talked a lot about the economic foundations of maritime power and naval power on top of it. And sitting here in Newport, Rhode Island, I hear a lot of uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan in that idea. And I'm curious the extent in your view, Mike or Lonnie, if you want to weigh back in on it, in what ways are Chinese views on developing sea power consistent with that Mahanian theory? And in what ways are they pursuing somewhat of a different objective? Thanks, Isaac. And again, thanks for this opportunity to be on the podcast. I guess I'd build on what Lonnie was saying, talking a little bit 
about there needs to be an understanding about just how broad some of the guidance from Chinese leadership is on these types of issues, that it doesn't necessarily fit within kind of a, a U.S. or Western approach to doctrine. So I happened to be in Beijing uh, at the U.S. Embassy there when, you know, when that speech was given talking about, you know, China will become a great maritime power. And so the State Department and the Department of Defense are like, you know, Mike, can you get us a copy of the Chinese plan to become a great maritime power? And I'm like, sure, it's right there. Become a great maritime power. That was it. There's no, this is founded on this, this doctrinal belief about Mahanian thought. In many ways, China is and probably will be the, for the foreseeable future a continental power in, in the classic sort of Germany versus Great Britain. China is more interested in occupying space on the board, occupying territory, establishing locations from which they can extend power. But the guidance from the central party leadership really was just that, become a great maritime power. And I think as Lonnie expressed, that leaves it to everybody down echelon, whether they're in the civilian sector, whether they're in one of the ministries, whether they're in a industrial sector or in the military, to fulfill that vision. And you know their fate, their position within the hierarchy is going to be determined by whether or not they can fulfill that vision to the satisfaction of leadership given that broad guidance. You asked primarily about the non-military component of maritime power, but it's important to not read into that an assumption about what the military component of a global maritime power consists of. It's obvious the Chinese leadership intends for China to be able to maintain a military presence far from China, especially a maritime military presence far from China. But there's no indication yet that they seek to develop the capability to fight a large conventional military conflict far from China. So the, the military component of Chinese maritime power is still more in the line of maintaining a presence and doing the sorts of things that a responsible great power does for the general good of the international community, uh, such things as uh, anti-piracy operations and humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, and military maritime diplomacy, port calls, hospital ship visits, and that sort of thing, and not the capability to fight a naval conflict far from China. So in that sense, it's not very Mahanian. Very interesting, Lonnie, and that aligns very neatly with some of the work that we've been doing here on China's logistical capabilities, especially across the Indian Ocean region. And if you have in your mind this idea that China must effectively mirror image the way that the United States seeks to project power, as in high-end combat power into regional theaters, including the Middle East and East Asia and Europe, then you're going to have a very different set of questions and a different analytical mode when you look at what China's doing. Whereas the need for serious combat capability is almost exclusively concentrated in the Western Pacific. Those are the contingencies for which the PLA is organized and postured and structured to prepare to fight. And looking across the globe and particularly across those Indian Ocean trade routes, they want to defend those sea lanes, of course. They want to secure their vulnerable access to vital inputs, especially oil and gas, minerals, etc. But the idea that they need to find ways to project that kind of high-end power further afield seems like it may be a misunderstanding of the maritime strategy. No, I agree. And when people talk about the PLA's role in defending the sea lanes, 
my immediate rejoinder is always defend what, where, against whom. So if you're talking about defending merchant ships against Somali pirates in the Gulf of Aden, that requires one set of capabilities. If you're talking about defending the entire flow of shipping in the middle of the Indian Ocean against a blockade effort by the U.S. Navy, that requires an entirely different set of capabilities. And everything we've seen so far fits into that first category and not the second. Yeah, we're, we're getting into some, some larger questions about Chinese maritime strategy, Chinese naval strategy. But I guess I would say that we just have to listen to what the Chinese say. It is not Farsi's power projection. It is Farsi's protection. And you mentioned the word defend. They want to defend these interests, oil and gas, minerals, overseas trading. If you look at the Chinese economy, the economic component of being a great maritime power, I think China has has economic interests that extend far beyond their ability right now to protect them militarily. And the military is well aware of that. There have been lots of examples of Chinese workers being taken hostage in Eastern Africa, maybe even in Western Africa. I haven't kept up on it lately, but I remember just a few years ago, the military, the PLA, was frustrated that they didn't have the heavy lift aircraft, that they did not have the power projection. I'm using air quotes here. You know, the power projection capability. They could not defend Chinese interests overseas. And Xi Jinping has made very clear that one of their missions is to protect China's overseas interests along the Belt and Road, if you will. But pretty much anywhere that China has an economic interest overseas, the PLA needs to be prepared to support and defend that. Now, in the United States and the West, maybe we think about that as a power projection capability. But now we're getting into a discussion of, is the PLA fundamentally an offensive force or a defensive force in 2022? Do they want to be that world-class military? Are they going to define it in the same way as having you know a force that can pick up and take a couple of group armies and deploy them to the Middle East to knock down a dictator that's acting against their interests? Or do they simply want to be able to, as Lonnie said, you know, what, where, and who are they defending against? Is it some somebody who's come into power that has suddenly nationalized Chinese economic interests in a third world country? Or are they going to be facing down the United States or another middle power in some kind of rock'em, sock'em robots event in South America or, or Africa or somewhere else that we haven't envisioned yet? Right. Thank you for the reports that both of you have written for the China Maritime Studies Institute. Quite interesting area of the development of China's maritime power, particularly in China's nominally civilian shipping and fishing fleets. But I want to know what we can say about the current and conceivable future roles for these varied civilian maritime assets under a variety of contingencies for which they might be mobilized or operationalized for military use. So Talani, if you could walk us through some of the operational roles that you identified for the Chinese maritime militia, and in particular during a major amphibious operation, which is to say some kind of Taiwan contingency, how effective would this force be for the range of missions that you lay out in your piece? In particular, how exactly would they be tasked and what can we say about what the command and control would look like? How reasonable an expectation is it that this maritime militia and other parts of the Chinese industrial fishing fleet or uh, artisanal fishing fleet, for that matter, can really be employed for military purposes? 
Thanks, Isaac. The Chinese maritime militia has received a fair amount of attention in the West in the last five years or so, um, especially since the build out of the Chinese uh, infrastructure in the South China Sea. Most of the attention has been on what the Chinese call maritime rights protection activities. The Chinese maritime militia in the South China Sea enforcing China's territorial claims down there or in the East China Sea enforcing China's claims around the Senkaku Islands. The other major category, which has not received nearly as much attention, is maritime militia support to PLA military operations. And that's in particular what we're talking about here with regard to a potential Taiwan conflict, but it also applies to other conflicts that are within reach of the maritime militia. The main argument over whether the PLA is or is not capable of an invasion of Taiwan has revolved around the PLA's capacity for amphibious lift. How many troops can they carry across the strait and get ashore in Taiwan, in particular without the use of Taiwan ports that have to go across the beach, but also in you know the, the second phase of the operation when they'd be entering the ports. And there's a pretty large group of analysts who are of the opinion that China does not have the capability to do an invasion. And the main reason they don't is because they don't have enough lift capacity. My argument is that you're missing half the picture, or maybe more than half the picture, and that the lift capacity that the PLA envisions for a Taiwan invasion is not solely, and maybe even not even primarily, military amphibious lift, but rather it's civilian lift and other kinds of civilian maritime support functions provided out of the enormous fleet of ships of all type that are under the control either of Chinese corporations or the Chinese state. Since the Chinese began talking seriously or preparing seriously for a Taiwan conflict, which I argue started around 1999 after the embassy bombing in Belgrade, that they have talked all along about the requirement to mobilize thousands of civilian ships in support of the military operation. This fits in the very long-standing belief in uh, people's war that any conflict is a conflict of, as trendy to say in the United States nowadays, an all-of-society conflict. It's not just a PLA conflict. So starting in the early 2000s, the Chinese government reinvigorated the National Defense Mobilization Apparatus, which is dedicated to mobilizing economic resources of all sorts in support of military operations. And in particular, for our purposes, the maritime component of that. There is an enormous bureaucratic structure headed at the top by the National Defense Mobilization Commission in Beijing, duplicated at government levels all the way down to the locality. And that apparatus is under the control of the civilian government because mobilization is a government function, not a military function. The PLA is the customer for mobilization and the government is the provider. Government entities and state-owned enterprise entities of all sorts come together in these National Defense Mobilization Committees where the PLA articulates its requirements and everyone else figures out how they're going to meet the requirements. So at the bottom end of this apparatus is what's called the People's Armed Forces Departments at each locality. For the purposes we're talking about here, those are the guys who are in charge of identifying, cataloging, and arranging the mobilization of civilian merchant ships and 
maritime militia organizations in support of military operations. One of the big principles is mobilize uh, ships and crews together. So when the local PAFD identifies a ship that they want to use for military mobilization purposes, they have a number of tasks they have to do. First of all is make the contractual arrangements with the ship owner, especially if it's a private enterprise. Nowadays, they have property right. You've got to have a contract. You've got to have a compensation scheme to compensate the ship owner. Second is to identify the modifications that need to be made to that vessel to make it suitable for military purposes. And that may be done in the construction phase or it may be done in retrofitting later on in the process. The kinds of things that may be retrofitted include obviously military communications. You've got to be able to talk if you're going to support the Navy. Perhaps special purpose equipment for whatever role they're going to fulfill. For instance, if they're doing underway replenishment. They have to have the kind of cranes and other apparatus that you need to reach sideways to provide fuel and, and resources to another ship underway. They may require reinforcement of decks and tie-down points to handle heavy equipment that the ship might not otherwise be having. The crew of that ship is organized into a maritime militia unit. So the local PAFD is in charge of creating and supervising those units, training the individuals in their military tasks, because just being able to sail a ship doesn't teach you how to sail a ship in convoy with other ships and how to interact with uh, your superior and subordinate ships to be part of a chain of command. All the training things, it doesn't teach you self-defense. It doesn't teach you all the other tasks that you have to do to be able to be uh, an effective member of a military organization. And then you've just got to keep track of everything. You may have sorted all of this out for a given ship, and then the next thing you know, that ship is sold to a different company, and now you've got to start over. You've got to keep track of where the ship is. It's, if it's halfway around the world, you can't mobilize it. You've got to know whether it's locally available for mobilization. Have the personnel been trained? Has there been a change out in personnel on the ship? Have they showed up for their annual training period? Which is, by the way, a challenge for them because, especially for fishing ships, They'd like to do the training during the three-month summer fishing moratorium, but those fishermen want to get another job during those three months and make some money. So it's always a challenge to get those guys rounded up. So that's the bureaucratic process of data management and sort of process management for this. It's an enormous bureaucratic challenge. Let's look now at the military roles these ships will fulfill. Um, one obvious one, one is what the Chinese call transportation and delivery of forces. And Mike's going to talk a whole lot about that because he's done some really great work in the last two years on, the, on that component of it. A second obvious role for these ships is over-the-shore logistics. Uh, that is pumping fuel ashore, getting materiel ashore. So you get the troops ashore and get the material ashore. But then there's a lot of other roles that civilian ships will play for the PLA as well in any military operation. The Chinese talk about medical support, engineering support, that is helping to open up damaged ports. So you have tugs and barges and crane ships and dredgers that will participate in that engineering support. They talk about things like reconnaissance, surveillance, and early warning, which I understand to mean a whole bunch of civilian ships, probably small fishing boats, out in the Western Pacific, keeping an eye on things with a radio to know who to talk to and what to say to call in to say, hey, I just saw an aircraft carrier at the following location. And 
on the surface supplement to the overhead assets that the PLA relies on for maintaining situational awareness in the Western Pacific. Let me just chime in on that real quick, Lonnie, if I could, because I, I look at a lot of AIS data and I don't know why it didn't occur to me before as I'm seeing all these ships go up and down the Chinese coast and around the area. There is, I don't know, Isaac, maybe you know off the top of your head, but there is like hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars of cross-strait trade between Taiwan and China. Just about $200 billion. A lot of times the high-end components of a technological device are manufactured in Taiwan and then they're shipped off to the Chinese mainland to be assembled. Who's doing all that shipping? A lot of these characters that I've been looking at in AIS that have been supporting the PLA are actually going to Chinese ports. Not the big roll-on, roll-off ferries, but some of these cargo ships. So when we talk about reconnaissance, yes, we can talk about, hey, I saw an aircraft carrier at these coordinates and I'm going to phone it in. But when you talk about support for a cross-strait invasion, a lot of times if you go to a Taiwan port, you're going to find a lot of Chinese flagged ships with a lot of Chinese captains that may be on the maritime militia payroll or have some kind of tasking from the PLA to do reconnaissance of those ports, to look at the port infrastructure, to get readings on depths, whatever might be helpful in a future Taiwan invasion. Lonnie, did you want to round out the range of potential military operational roles you're seeing with the maritime militia in particular? The other role that I wanted to highlight is uh, deception and concealment. And they don't talk a lot about this, but you think about what could the maritime militia do in the way of deception and concealment for an amphibious landing operation? And the thing that occurs to me is to flood the Taiwan Strait with jammers and decoys. Any strategy for defending against an amphibious landing focuses primarily on sinking the amphibious ships rather than on stopping them at the beach. That in turn depends on identifying the targets and getting munitions onto the target. And a very cheap and probably devastatingly effective tactic would be to have a lot more fake targets than real targets in the Taiwan Strait and suck up a lot of those munitions so that more of the real targets get through and achieve their objectives. So I fully expect that any landing will involve thousands of extremely realistic radio decoys and radar decoys and acoustic decoys in the straits, the acoustic decoys hoping to suck up torpedoes from U.S. submarines that go against a, a low-cost little small ship with a decoy rather than a very expensive and scarce amphib. So I think I've talked about most of the roles. There are a few sort of odds and ends like helicopter relay platforms, what a U.S. Army guy would call a forward area refueling and rearming point, FARP, so that helicopter doesn't have to go all the way back to the Chinese coast to get its next load of ammo, but can just pop out to a semi-submersible somewhere, reload and get back into the fight quickly. So one of the huge questions is, is this going to work? And a big part of that is how well do they practice for this? And, and Mike has been doing the work on that, so I'll leave that for him to discuss. The Challenges that the Chinese talk about in getting this to work, first of all, is just the huge data management challenge. There are thousands of ships and tens of thousands of personnel for which they need to keep current status and location and training status. And are, are they ready to go? Where are they? Have we got the contract in place? Have we got the finances in place to pay to reimburse the owner, etc.? cetera? Uh, just a massive data management problem. And the Chinese are of the opinion that they don't do a good job of that. 
Second is how good is the training? Crew training and also once you get the crew trained, that, that maritime militia civilian ship unit training with its supported units, both the PLA Navy unit that it'll be operating in convoy with and the PLA Army unit that it's going to be hauling across the strait if it's doing the delivery and transport mission. Third is finance and law. They've been working on getting the laws in place, laws and regulations in place, and the financial underpinnings in place. But they, as late as 2020, they're still complaining that all of that is not sorted out properly. In particular, on the financial side, who pays for all this? It does not come out of the PLA budget. It comes out of a government budget. But is it the central government or the provincial government or the local government? And everyone's still arguing about that, and it's not sorted out. A final point that they talk about is foreign flag ships. There are an awful lot of ships controlled by Chinese shipping companies which do not fly the Chinese flag. Does the Chinese government have the authority to mobilize those ships? Some PLA writers of the, are of the opinion that that's not a problem, but I think that's an issue that will have to be sorted out at the time. So with that, I'll uh, hand over to Mike. We could talk about that for a while, so I'll, I'll try to sum it up. The bottom line up front, what everybody wants to know is, like, can they do it, right? Can they get across the Taiwan Strait using this civilian lift capability? Right now, Mike Dom's assessment, having looked at this for the past three years, is probably not. Not in 2022. Now, they have made tremendous progress just in the last 12 months. They haven't made enough progress to use this capability to support in a substantial way a cross-strait invasion that would compensate for a lot of the shortcomings that you alluded to earlier in terms of you know the PLA Navy amphibious forces lift capabilities. But if this is a trend, you know, if what we're seeing in 2022 is a trend that is going to continue for 2023, 2024, and so on and so forth. There is a possibility that they can get their act together and get enough capacity and and work through a lot of these procedures and the bureaucracy that Lonnie was talking about earlier to have a substantial civilian, you know, capable civilian component, possibly by the end of the decade. I know that's a long ways off and it's kind of wave of the hand. It's just a question of whether they're going to continue with the type of increase that we saw just in the last 12 months in this capability. Now, I'm going to go ahead and point out that there may be possibly an element of the COVID-19 pandemic at play here, which is to say these roll-on, roll-off ferries, they're built to national defense standards, but they are not the PLA's playthings. They are part of a business that is designed to make money for the companies involved and whatever the PLA is paying them for their charter services probably isn't compensating for the thousands of vehicles that they could be taking across the Bohai or or anywhere else in China generating revenue. The question then becomes, you know, how much of this, of what we're seeing right now in the activity of some of these civilian ships is because there are lots of travel restrictions in China, because there is not tourism going across the Bohai, there are not a lot of private cars and vehicles that are headed across. So the PLA is like, hey, we've got a bunch of underemployed vessels. We have these requirements. Let's see if we can knock out some of this experimentation, some of these capabilities while we have the opportunity. And in fact, as and when things return to normal, whether that's next year or several years from now, maybe some of this activity trails off. That said, I wanted to address a couple of things that Lonnie brought up in terms of 
Well, first of all, things like training. So one of the interesting things that we see in videos of these civil maritime lift events, uh, if you want to call them that, where the the PLA is being transported on a cargo ship or a roll-on, roll-off ship. It's interesting. The PLA actively promotes this as part of their civil military fusion initiative. But at least what is shown in the videos is the PLA soldiers and the PLA logistics personnel are the ones directing the traffic on the pier. They're the ones that are directing the traffic on the ferry. Yes, the crew is there to help. You know, they don't want anything bad to happen to their ship, so they're going to just turn it over to these soldiers. But it's really the soldiers that are being trained to do the work, to do the chalking and chaining of the vehicles once they get on board. And if you think, well, if what's really being trained here are the PLA personnel bringing all this stuff on board and PLA personnel are the ones being trained on on loading and, and where things can go on a particular type of ship, then you get into this plug and play situation where I don't necessarily need the civilian crew to be as trained as they might need to be. They just need to show up at the right place at the right time. And the PLA soldiers will say, okay, I know that these vehicles can go on the upper decks. These vehicles have to go on the lower decks. We're going to chalk and chain them in this way. This is how we're going to load. This is how we're going to assemble for loading. And that's all taken care of. And you don't need the ship crew to show up and necessarily do that. That's not true for all aspects of everything that I've been looking at. But I I think it's, you know, in terms of just moving things from point A to point B, it's really interesting in the as far as the active role that the PLA is taking in making all that happen. They're not just passengers on some of these ships. So what I looked at for 2022, I tried to take a comprehensive look to kind of baseline what's going on with a lot of this activity. So this will all be posted on, on the new Chinese Fairy Tales publication if that's not out by the time we go to press on the podcast here. I think we're looking at uh, 744 ship days underway in support of military activities between, I kind of looked at the fiscal year, it just worked out that way from October of 2021 to the end of September 2022. There were 38 events. A lot of those were just going point to point. You know, a ship picks up a PLA unit, goes off to another port and drops them off. But of those 38 events, I categorized 12 as significant events, which involved multiple ships in a coordinated fashion. And then the PLA training year ended up with three major exercises. Two were what I call large volume lift exercises, where it looked like they were moving second echelon forces. These would be non-amphibious forces from port to port. And then there was one exercise that did get uh, some press back in August and September, where roll-on, roll-off ferries were actually participating in amphibious landing exercises. So some of these roll-on, roll-off ships can actually sit offshore and deploy amphibious vehicles, just like an LPD or an LHA or some kind of amphibious ship. And then the armor swims off of the off of the roll-on, roll-off ferry and into the beach. One of the interesting things that I've been looking at for the last several years is the use of a floating pier or what I've come to call a a floating causeway. This is a lot like the U.S. Navy's INLS system. It has uh, self-propelled sections that they can assemble. And right now, the last thing I saw was I think it comes out about 2,000 feet off of the beach. It does use this large uh, semi-submersible barge that's used in port construction projects which seems to limit the practicality of how you might use this thing tactically. 
you would think that you would just want to be able to roll this thing off of a ship and have it swim itself to shore and assemble it, and then ships could go back and forth and dock. But they seem to want to have this big, stable, semi-submersible barge for the ships to dock with in order to make the floating causeway work. I'm not sure, based on what I've seen, that they've worked through all the technical issues This is not easy when you start talking about the surf zone and wave action and keeping this thing in place. All the exercises I've seen to date have, and this includes even the stuff with the amphibious landings using the civilian ships, it's all perfect weather. I've got great commercial satellite imagery because there's not a cloud in the sky. There's very little indication that, you know, anything in the ways of heavy seas, uh, a lot of times these amphibious landing areas are in protected bays. Certainly two years ago, it was actually like in an inner harbor. The water was like glass. I think when you take it all in total, we can talk about some of the impressive numbers, how much capacity China could bring to bear based on what we've seen. You know, they're not stressing the system. They're just kind of, they seem to be going through the motions right now. In terms of the capacity, this was something really interesting. And this is something I called out in the first Fairy Tales publication that was published at the end of 2021, looking at 2020 and 2021 activity. I said, hey, they're demonstrating a lot of capabilities, but they're not demonstrating capacity, right? Moving eight ships once is not like moving 80 ships once. And moving eight ships once is not like moving eight ships you know, several times between ports, not more than several times, but numerous times between ports over the course of days or weeks. And none of that simulates trying to do that while you're getting shot at. I like everything that Lonnie said about using civilian ships for denial and deception and decoys. And, and I think that is all in the cards for the maritime militia. But you've got these civilian ships transporting PLA units that are going to have to operate in that same environment. There's going to be a lot of confusion. They're going to be deceived by their own deception in many cases. But how you do that while under fire is evolution in capability and an evolution in training that I don't think we have observed yet. So in terms of the capacity this year, 2022, you know, again, that was from October to September of this year. But for that year, We saw 36 ships involved in training. Most of the lift capability that the PLA demonstrated in the activity that I was looking at, those 38 events, came from these large roll-on, roll-off ferries, most of which are are working across the Bohai Gulf. There was one event, and again, this is what I was able to derive from open source, looking at the commercial satellite imagery, looking at the AIS tracks, there was a big event. It ran for about five weeks in July and August of 2022. And in total, these ships made 82 trips between different ports that appeared to be involved in these exercises. So again, looking at this satellite imagery, and we can talk about capacities and what some of these ships might be able to carry. But what I came down to was they're probably going to carry a unit. And the largest unit would probably be like a heavy combined arms battalion, which is about 150 to 160 vehicles. So when we talk about, well, these ships can carry 400 vehicles, well, it's going to be a lot of economy-sized cars and a lot of pickup trucks and things like that, not necessarily tanks and other things. But I make the observation in this new publication that, you know, a PLA commander is not going to want to split his force, which is to say... He's not going to put like all the ammunition and maintenance guys on one ship and all the tanks on another ship because one of those ships might not show up 
where it's supposed to go in a, in a wartime environment. And now I got a bunch of tanks and I don't have any ammunition and I got a bunch of stuff breaking and I don't have any maintainers. Units want to move as units. So when you do the math, about 160 vehicles per lift times 82 lifts with about 1,000 to 1,100 troops per unit, you start coming up with some pretty big numbers, right? 5,800 vehicles could have been moved in this 82 lift exercise and maybe something on the order of like 50,000 troops. Well, that works out to about two group armies worth of guys and stuff. And that is substantial. But it took them five weeks. A lot of times these ships were in port for not just hours, but days. Sometimes they turned around pretty quick. They're in port for a couple hours. You imagine they're onloading, they're offloading. But a lot of times they were in port for like 72 hours. I don't know what they're doing, right? They're taking a break. They're waiting for the next unit to show up. So the numbers, while they're impressive, 50,000 troops, 5,800 vehicles, they're taking weeks to do this. And the PLA in in these exercises between Chinese ports, of course, has complete control over the port. They can block off traffic. They can get guys in and out. You know, they can get their units in and out of the port quickly. They control the railheads. They can get guys in and out by rail. And then beyond that, Lonnie talked about training for things like convoys. And I fully expected to see stuff like that, especially during the amphibious landing exercise where they seem to be simulating like, this is how we're going to use civilian ships. And oh, by the way, this was being done with, I don't have tracking on Chinese naval vessels, but when I'm looking at the AIS, the ship transponders, right, the automatic identification system transponders, and I can get a commercial satellite image of a piece of water and I see a whole bunch of ships out there that have no AIS track, I'm assuming those are PLA Navy ships. Because even fishing boats, you know, down to the smallest fishing boats have these AIS transponders per Chinese law. So I know that these roll-on, roll-off ships that are doing these amphibious landings are doing it in concert with PLA Navy ships and in many cases PLA Navy amphibious ships. But I expected when they were moving from their port of embarkation down to their landing areas that they would like do something defensive, like be in a convoy. So if they were being escorted by a PLA Navy frigate, they would be under the air defense coverage of that frigate. Did not observe that kind of discipline at all. They're just a whole bunch of independent units that seem to be going down there. There was no discipline in terms of maintaining a formation, maintaining close proximity. They were going at different speeds. They were speeding up. They were slowing down based on traffic patterns along the Chinese coast. So didn't really see anything in terms of that sort of evolved, sophisticated training that might indicate that they were preparing to operate in a conflict environment. Now, All that said, we talked about these different missions. Everybody's interested now after the invasion of Ukraine and the possible invasion of Taiwan. Can they do it? Can't they do it? You know, there are lots of other reasons why you might want to use civilian shipping, even in concert with the military, beyond a Taiwan Strait invasion. One of the interesting things I saw this year, which I had not observed before, I'm not saying it never happened before, I just hadn't seen it. But they use some of these big ocean-going roll-on, roll-off ferries to probably run PLA troops upriver about 200 miles to Nanjing, up the Yangtze River. Had not observed that before. Why would they do something like that? Well, 
you imagine in a conflict scenario, there could be damage to infrastructure. There could be attacks on the Chinese mainland that would prevent railheads or roads or bridges or tunnels from being used on the Chinese mainland. So using inland waterways for mobility might be a good strategy. But the other thing is disaster relief. What if it's not a, an attack on mainland China, but roads are, are washed out, bridges are washed out, there's been some kind of earthquake flood or some other damage to critical infrastructure in China, they can use these civilian ships under military authority to move things up and down the coast and to move things up these inland waterways. So, you know, there are a lot of things that they can do with their civilian maritime force right now. But again, I don't think they can get there across the Taiwan Strait. Now, I always caveat this. I caveated it at the end of my last article, and I've had a couple of journalists engage with me since then, and they all want to use this line. And it's dangerous, but you kind of got to put it out there. If the PLA or the Chinese authorities are willing to take substantial losses, like if they're in it, they have painted themselves into a corner and they cannot get out and they are willing to sacrifice lots of ships and lots of people, that's when things start to get really interesting. But when you talk about disciplined, efficient, effective use of resources to conduct a Taiwan invasion, they're not there. Thank you, Mike. That is really on target for all the stuff that we want to cover here. And I feel like you actually touched on a bunch of the questions that I was going to pose to you. So I may turn to Lonnie and ask him to weigh in on something to the effect of how confident would the PLA be in the event of this high-end major amphibious operation. Lonnie, would you say that this very extensive and intensive use of civilian maritime assets is plan A? for Beijing as it thinks about how to use all the instruments of national power to achieve this key objective of unifying with Taiwan? And if it is plan A, how good a plan is it? How confident should they be that this is going to be a successful way to achieve lift or any other operational objective that they need to get to? And would also like to hear you reflect on other types of contingencies or scenarios in which the civilian capability may be more effective. Of course, the amphibious invasion is the highest end scenario. We can envision all sorts of things below that threshold involving Taiwan, whether it's various forms of blockade, whether it's small island seizures, whether it's gray zone coercion of various types. How good a plan is this to really employ all the civilian assets? And how fungible are they over different types of contingencies in your view? Well, I think to rephrase your first question, the way I always put it, this is a feature, not a bug. This is not a stopgap measure because the PLA Navy doesn't yet have the capabilities that they think it needs. This is how they intend to fight this fight. And I think that point is only reinforced by the surge in activity that Mike has demonstrated over the last couple of years. This is a capability they're building towards. It's not something they're doing right now just because they can't do anything better. It's also, I think, from their perspective, a question of efficiency. If you can accomplish your mission with a mixture of military and civilian ships, then why should you have three times as many military ships? You can rely on the civilian ships, and meanwhile, they can be out doing their main job instead of having a huge amphibious 
ship fleet in the gray hull sitting around waiting for something to happen. Ten years ago, when we were arguing among ourselves about whether the PLA was serious about building a Taiwan invasion capability, one of the arguments that was offered was they won't because they'd have to have too many amphibs, and then those amphibs would just be sitting there rusting because they're never actually going to use it. I don't agree with most of that, but I do agree with the point that a whole lot of underemployed amphibs is not the best, the most economical solution to this problem. Now, as Mike pointed out, you may suffer pretty heavy casualties because you have relied on minimally trained civilian crews and ships that are not totally optimized for the task, rather than better trained military crews. But it's clear to me that this is their desired approach to how their concept of operations for such a conflict. It's not just stopgap measure. Second point, uh, Mike talked a little about the loading and unloading task, maybe not requiring as much training for the crews because, of course, the military unit can take care of the loading and unloading part of the task. True enough, but there are many other things that the crew has to learn in order to be effective in a military environment besides just loading and unloading tasks. So training of the crews remains important uh, if this is going to be effective. It's questionable how good the training is. Well, it's not questionable in the sense that they say the training's not good enough, but kind of putting some numbers behind that is hard from our perspective. For example, a lot of the other roles that they describe for civilian ships might not be as visible to us as the amphibious troop delivery mission for those ships. And if they're out training on military communications procedures or self-defense and mutual defense training or rescue and first aid or military chain of command or how to operate a military radio, all of those things, it would be a lot harder for us to tell that they were doing that. So it's a big question mark how good that part of the crew training is. Third big question mark, of course, is the surge capacity. We've seen them do like 80 ships, and that's, that's how many they had available at the time. If they called up every available ship, how much could they carry? That's something we should be able to calculate, but I don't know if anybody has. And then how good would they be? That's, that's uh, the big unknown. No, I just respond to that really quickly that I think this is a key point. The bigger limitation in my mind, having looked at this for a while now, is not necessarily how many ships you can get underway. It's about throughput. And I think any logistician in the U.S. Navy or the U.S. Army would tell you, you know, I can load a ship, I can get a ship from point A to point B. It's the bottleneck that you hit in some of these ports. And when you look at these ports, I mean, Oh, yeah. You know, you, you can see the container ports in Shanghai and things, and it looks a lot like Long Beach. And they're just like these massive things. This is more like moving a battalion through Newport. These are small coastal ports, some of which have been built out with some fantastic infrastructure, but they've like reclaimed land that they have built out from the side of a mountain. And that's on both sides, the Fujian side, on the Chinese side, and also on the Taiwan side. So just because I can get the ship into the port and it's not mined, and nobody has sunk a large vessel in the channel to get there. Okay, now I'm pier side. Here are my you know, 160 vehicles along with the 160 vehicles that have gotten off the other three ships that have just arrived. And now I need to move those through whatever infrastructure is left across whatever terrain is left 
and tactically deploy them and get them out. I talked about this a little bit, where I'm watching this activity going in and out of Chinese ports where they control all the traffic, they can stop all the traffic, and everybody just zips in and out of the port. Well, that's awesome. But, you know, when the airstrikes come and when ports start getting congested, how are you going to address that throughput problem? And I don't know that civilian logisticians or the Joint Logistics Support Force has really gotten there with how they're going to address those types of challenges, and they're going to be significant. Thanks to you both for identifying a couple of those really key analytical question marks and also highlighting the tremendously valuable open source intelligence resources that are out there by virtue of all this publicly available satellite imagery, all the very extensive reporting in the Chinese media and adjacent media on this. And I think just in closing, I'm wondering if each of you could weigh in briefly on your sense of what the value of this resource is and isn't, frankly, and maybe give some encouragement to all the aspiring China analysts out there about how rich the resource base is and what you can really do with it when you start to focus on concrete questions as you both have done so admirably. Well, clearly the PLA military journals, which mostly are out of the PLA academic institutions, but also there's kind of the general PLA news journals, they provide the backbone of what we know about these operations. The reason we know to look on the commercially available imagery is because there's an article in a PLA Daily or China Militia Magazine or Guofang National Defense Magazine that helps us understand what's going on so we can know what to look for. The problem with it is that these articles tend to be pretty general and not very specific, depending on how sensitive they deem the topic to be. For some reason, when they talk about the kinds of training we've got to do for the militia crews of these mobilized civilian ships, that doesn't seem to be sensitive. Or the fact that the training is not good enough, that's not sensitive. But if you want to know exactly how many ships of what types they've got, you're never going to find that through open source research. It's got to be something else entirely. Yeah, I guess I would say that how much am I contributing to a large PLA-driven influence campaign that wants the world to know that they're building toward this capability for a cross-strait invasion? Now, I'm not 100% sure about this, but maybe this is something you can turn the, uh, the Naval War College research folks onto. I don't recall a senior Chinese leader or military leader, at least those on active duty, ever threatening to invade Taiwan. Now, people will say, well, it's implied. I mean, we've seen all the videos of the amphibious landings, and you guys are writing all this stuff about civilian capabilities and what they're going to do with them in a cross-strait invasion. But Chinese leadership does not appear to have made an explicit threat to invade Taiwan. A lot of that talk comes out of the Pentagon. A lot of that talk comes out of Taipei. And it is something that we need to concern ourselves with and continue to research. But I'm going to go ahead and quote my friend Lonnie Henley. I will quote this back to anybody who will listen. The PLA's use of military force against Taiwan to prevent Taiwan independence or to forcibly reintegrate Taiwan is not necessarily dependent on an invasion, putting a PLA soldier on every street corner in Taipei. As Lonnie said, it is all about making Taipei come out with their hands up. I don't think we in the U.S. intelligence community and the you know military academic community have a real good sense of what that would take. Chinese intelligence probably has a pretty good idea of what types of leverage and what types of operations they could do against Taiwan in a more limited fashion that might 
give Taipei pause and consider coming out with their hands up and turning over the keys. I don't want to make light of this. I don't want to make this sound tongue in cheek. But I think Lonnie's point is sound in that way, that we really need to understand what types of operations, what types of things the PLA might do short of a full-scale invasion, and then part and parcel to that, how civilian shipping and the things that we're focusing on here might be used to that end. To the point about looking at the open source as, as a recovering intelligence officer of some 25 years, I have just been stunned and amazed at the kinds of resources that are out there available to open source and academic researchers. Stuff that was in the providence of governments only five or 10 years ago, you can now sit in your home office with a credit card and access satellite imagery. You can task satellite imagery. And I actually did that for a couple of these fairy tales publications. The access to journal articles you know, the PLA is writing a lot more than you might think about some of their challenges, about some of the things that they need to overcome and some of the progress that they're making. And I think in a lot of cases, we just need to listen to what the PLA is saying about themselves in order to determine where they might be going. Thank you both for sharing this extraordinary expertise and keen insights with Sea Power today. We wish you fair winds and following seas. Thanks. Thanks, Isaac. Department of the Navy or the Department of Defense.